This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers, worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. series called Culture Shift. Uh, the first one uh, happened two weeks ago and what we're trying to do is kind of sit, understand the, the cultural water that we, that we all swim in in, in the secular West and, and try and explore as we go through the series, how do, how do you be a follower of Jesus in this kind of cultural moment, in this uh, uh, time that's not very Christian? And um, so we looked last week, we'd kind of, we're leaping out of the book of, our, uh, of Daniel. What I'm not doing is preaching um, all the, every bit of Daniel. We're just going to jump in and kind of touch down on Daniel and then leap out to the culture. The reason why I'm using Daniel is because Daniel is a story of, uh, uh, so, of someone who was taken from Jerusalem, the, the city of God, and uh, taken forcibly when Jerusalem was destroyed by King Nebuchadnezzar, taken to the city of Babylon or the city of Babel, which stands for the city of man or the city of self or the city of humanity. And he's made that journey and he's living as a exile, a cultural exile. Uh, and in one sense, we, we talked about that last time. You can, you can look at it and listen to it, sorry. And you can, um, we, we talked about what's it, what's it like? What's the cultural moment, the culture shift that we've been on? And so I just want to pick that up. Um, and so what we're going to do, look at this week, we're going to look into Daniel 2, and we're going to read about uh, Daniel 2 and Daniel 3. We're going to read about two statues, uh, one that, Daniel ha- uh, that Nebuchadnezzar has in his vision and one that then Nebuchadnezzar built. A friend of mine uh, called Paul Oakley wrote the song, It's All About You. And um, <clears throat> I remember uh, standing next to Paul and singing, It's All About Me, because I'd been listening to this video. And Paul looked at me like, it's some years ago now, so I think he's lost touch with me because of that. But it's so easy to, to kind of have this kind of, it's, it's all about me. I mean, it, it trips off the tongue, doesn't it? It's quite easy. It's all about me. It really does fit. I lift my name on high. I mean, it's frightening, isn't it? It's really frightening. And so what I want to talk about today is this, the gospel of self. But actually, the reason why I'm calling it the gospel of self, because it's really, really close to the Christian gospel. But before we do that, uh, let's, uh, let's read and let's go to work. Okay, so uh, Daniel 2, just jumping in some verses. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar's had a dream. He, he's t- tired of being lied to. And so he, tell, he says to his, uh, his advisors, uh, you've got you to interpret my dream. They say, tell me the dream. And he's, uh-uh, uh, you've got to tell me the dream. And then you've got to interpret it. Obviously, pressure's on. So, so Nebuchadnezzar does what, what self does when it's opposed. It says, right, okay, I'm going to wipe you all out. You don't do what I say. I'm going to wipe you all out. News comes to Daniel about this dream, Daniel prays to God, and God shows him the dream, uh, and this is where we are. So uh, verse 31, your, ma- your majesty, so ki- ma- your majesty looked, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs iron, and its feet partly iron, baked with clay. 
While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on the feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver and gold were all broken to pieces and became like chaff on the threshing floor in the summer. The wind blew them away without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream, and now I'll interpret to you, the king. Your majesty, you are king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands is placed all mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds of the, in the sky. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them. You are the head of gold. After you, another kingdom will arise inferior to yours. Next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule the whole earth. And finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, as iron breaks and smashes everything. And as iron breaks things into pieces, so it will crush and break all the others. Just as you saw that the feet and toes were partly baked of clay and partly of iron, so this will be a divided kingdom. Verse 43. And just as you saw the iron uh, mixed with baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but itself will endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands. A rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true, and its interpretation is trustworthy. Father, we thank you for Daniel's just ability to understand the sign of the times. Thank you that you spoke to the king in Babylon and said, look, this is what's going to happen. And Lord, I pray that as we kind of look at our culture and how it impacts us and we look at your kingdom, I pray, Lord Jesus, that we'd be better disciples of you in this cultural moment. <clears throat> and all God's people says, Amen. Amen. So Daniel is interesting. Three times in the book of Daniel, Daniel is the one who's able to interpret the dreams. So there's, there's, there's two dreams that Nebuchadnezzar has, and Daniel is the only one who's, inter, who's able to interpret them. Uh, one is of this statue that we've read about. One we're not going to read about, but his son has a, a scary moment. He's having a kind of a, an orgy, a, a kind of banquet, with using all the stuff that came out of the temple of God uh, to drink out of, and a hand comes and writes on the wall. But in English it says, you've been weighed in the scales and found wanting. And both those ideas of, of kind of feet of clay and the writing on the wall have become part of our cultural narrative. We kind of know what it is. If somebody's got feet of clay, we know what that means. There's a vulnerability about them. And if the writing's on the wall, it means that the judgment, something's happened. The writing's on the wall, something's going to happen to them. But Daniel is the only one who's able to interpret these uh, cultural moments. And just in passing, I think it's really important for us to understand our culture because the thing is, we don't live in this bubble here. We live out, out there in our lives and we, it's good for us to know what's going on. It's good for us to know the sort of things, the cultural trends that are happening in our society because if we don't, we can be like the rest of the people in Daniel who've got no clue how to interpret the dreams. People are going to ask us what's happening in the society, what's happening in the world, and it's good for us to be able to understand what's going on. Do you agree? And so that you might get those conversations and you might be the, really the only one in your workplace or in your family who's able to say, well, this is what's happening in our culture. Because I think most people are like, I've no clue what's going on. 
But actually, what we're going to see is Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar that the statue he saw represents human cultures of the world. It actually represents actual historical cultures that are going to come, but I think it more generally represents the cultures of this world. So gold is Babylon. He's, uh, uh, Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar, you're the, you're the head of gold, which is obviously handy because Daniel, uh, Nebuchadnezzar could kill him. So it's better to say that he's the head of gold than the feet of clay. But he's the head of gold. And then after that comes the Persians, uh, and they invaded Babylon and they took over with Darius uh, the Mede. And then following that, there's Greek, who we know his name, who took over the world. Alexander. Alexander, they call him the Great. And then after that, who came after the Greeks? The Rome. And then at the time of that kingdom, a rock cut without human hands is going to strike the kingdoms and, uh, 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 and cultures of this world and bring in a new kingdom. Okay, quiz question. Who is the rock cut without human hands? I'll give you a clue. It's Jesus. But that's the, that's the thing. So that's the big narrative, and it loops around in, in, in Daniel that, that you get the, the kind of human cultures, and then the, 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 you get this kind of narrative where God humbles the human cultures, and they go, oh, right, I see. God of heaven is the one to be worshipped. And we're gonna, in, in my fourth talk, uh, so in a, a few weeks' time, I'm going to talk about that kind of cycle about how, how it should give us hope rather than despair. So, so when Jesus comes to earth, he's literally the one who's born without humanity. He's born without a father, literally without a biological father. He's the one cut without human hands. And, and, and even though we sang it beautifully in that song, that's like, you know, he's been crucified and that looks like the end. But no, Jesus kind of bursts out of the grave and he didn't just kind of pull down that kingdom, he's actually brought in a new kingdom. And I know we, we feel like, and I'll talk about this next week, there's a, this narrative that, that actually the world's getting more and more secular and Christianity's declining and declining. Actually, that's a false story. But we can look and say, well, that's not true. God, Jesus has come, but actually his kingdom hasn't filled the earth. The earth is filled with all kind of deception and craziness and God's kingdom's on the, you know, not filling the whole earth, it's on the back foot. Now we're going to talk about that next week, how that's not the true story. Um, but basically, the, the, the idea is that, that God is going to come and crush the cultures of the world. They're not just going to, uh, they're not, just not going to implode, they're just going to self-decide, God's going to destroy them. And it's interesting, the idea of, of dust. Isaiah 14, the brilliant chapter about how great God is, he says this, Surely the nations are like a drop in the bucket, or bucket if you're from Yorkshire. They are regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands, that means the nations, and they are those fine dust. Now, it's not that God doesn't care about human culture or is not interested in human culture, but be compared to his culture, it's the, it, 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 the nations are just dust. They're just empty dust. And when, um, when humanity tries to set up its own culture, that you get this situation where they built the golden calf. We did this in, um, in Exodus. And... Um, it says this, the idea of human cultures compared to God's kingdom as dust. So uh, 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 Moses says this, I took the shameful thing of yours, the calf you made, and burned it in the fire. There's going to be a fire next week. And then I crushed it and ground it to powder as fine as dust. So there's this idea that God's kingdom is this eternal kingdom, and all the kingdoms that we're trying to build, all the ideas that we're trying to build, all the culture we're trying to build is going to be blown away. So... Nebuchadnezzar sees that dream, it's a powerful dream, and, and, and Daniel interprets him, what would, you, what would be your response? 
You've had this incredible dream that says that, that, that God's going to do something that's going to destroy human cultures. What would be your response to that? It would make you think, right, I'm going to worship God. I'm going to worship God. If he's the winning side in the end, I'm going to worship God. Uh, but interesting, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't do that. He doesn't say to Daniel, hey, can you just tell me how to worship the living God? And Daniel would have said, look, you don't need a statue. If you go in the temple in Jerusalem, there's nothing there because God has made, the living God has made all of you in his image. And we're supposed to image God in the whole earth. You don't need a statue. That's what he would have said. And and so Nebuchadnezzar could have then bowed and prayed to the living God, but he doesn't do that. And that's not surprising because human culture, we mentioned this last week, human culture is like the Tower of Babel, the first Babylon, the Tower of Babel, the first time we hear about human culture. It's come, is it up there? Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. I've just underlined it there. Let us, ourselves, we make a name for ourselves. That's human culture. Human culture wants to say, right, we're going to set ourselves up and we're going to, set, uh, be, be, we're going to be God. We're going to be the, the, the kingdom that reaches to the heavens. We're going to make our name great. We're going to do that without God. And that's human culture. So it's not surprising then that, Daniel, uh, that Nebuchadnezzar's got that same proportion to set himself up in the place of God. And we see that right at the beginning of the Bible. We see that, that actually... Um, that there's the temptation, a lie, an idea comes in to the first humans that God is not to be trusted, that his commands are restrictive and that, that work against our flourishing. I mean, that's out there now, isn't it? If you say you're a Christian, most people will think you must be, you must be repressed. You know, there's no way that you can be free and living a full and flourishing life because if you're a Christian, it's all about God's desire to repress you. Do you hear that? Is anyone hear that out there? Yeah, I mean, it's like, and, and so we've, we, we, right at the very beginning, we believe this lie that God is, this, that God is not to be trusted, his commands are restrictive, that he's working against human flesh, and we've got to act for our own well-being. Dallas Willard, in his book, uh, The Re- Renovation of the Heart, writes this, this idea of a restrictive God that limits our freedom drives us to pushing, to the pushing of God out of our thoughts, and putting self on the throne of the universe. This inevitably results in the ruined soul in the ruined world. We'll come back to that. So Nebuchadnezzar does what humanity always does. When, it, when, when, it, when faced with the, with the glory of God, it says, actually, I'm going to exalt myself. So Nebuchadnezzar builds a statue. I think it's a statue of himself. I think it's a statue of himself. It's 90 foot high. I don't know where they get all the gold from. 90 foot high, uh, solid gold, and nine foot wide. And he says, you worship this. I mean, that is like this way, a way of saying, you know, I, I am really, really important. You know, I'm King Nebuchadnezzar, and I'm really important. Please worship me. And you think, oh, well, that's an example of kind of a dictator, you know, that's destroying the world. And, you know, but actually, it's what we all do. It's what we all do. Uh, I, I remember kind of when I was a kid, communism was like a cool idea. And, um, but everybody started to think, you know, there's a broken thing wrong in communism. Does anyone know what, what the thing that ruined communism? It's human nature. That was the kind of, the, the, the kind of kill switch 
in, 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 in communism was, yeah, it's a great idea, let's all share our stuff. But what happens is you get Stalin, who's doing exactly the opposite. He's kind of impoverishing his people and kind of getting all the stuff for himself. What about capitalism? What's the problem with capitalism? It kind of enshrines kind of human greed, doesn't it? And I'm not, again, I'm not saying we should have communism, but the, bo- the broken thing about human systems is, 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 is we're, we're the problem. We're the problem. You know, the rich just want more and more, and we just want more and more. We're the problem, and we love to build this culture of self. We love to build this self-worship, like we saw in that video. And self-worship, as I said last week, is, is about personal gratification, self-realization, and personal autonomy. Personal gratification, I want to have fun. Self-realization, I'm going to create my own identity, I'm going to be my own person. Personal autonomy, no one's going to tell me what to do. Where do you see that? Disney. You know, that is Disney. It's like, you know, you can just be who you want to be, you know? Let it go, let it go, you can just be who you want to be. You know, I I was going to sing it then, but I thought, no, I better not. (laughs) But but that is the thing, isn't it? You know, Disney tells you, you can be who you want to be. Our society says, if you have a dream, you know, you can have a dream come true. Just believe, just believe in yourself. I even was watching a thing about the England rugby team, and somebody says, just to the England rugby team, just believe in yourself. Now, I know that kind of is true in a sporting sense, but in an ultimate sense, it's just not true. It's... And, and so what happens is that we've got this gospel of self that each one of us in the West has certainly been taught to believe. Because who's against fun? Nobody. Who's against self-realization? I want to be who I want to be. Nobody. Who's against personal autonomy? I want to be in charge. Nobody. So it's part of our wiring. Every one of us in the West has been subtly taught to believe this gospel. Now, I just need to kind of be honest about my sources. I've listened to this podcast. I was saying to uh, somebody as they, as they came in, I just listened to this podcast, and I read this book. By, by, I mentioned it last week. I think there's a picture up. By a guy called Mark Sayers. He's an Aussie. Oh, I sent it to, that's right. I sent it to Drew. He's an Aussie, like Drew. That's why I was saying it, because I'm good at relating to people. <laughs> and... Um, and I think this guy, he leads a church in Melbourne, Australia, and, and I think this guy at the moment is like a, a prophetic voice to the church. If you don't like that language, he gets the culture. You know, he's understanding what's happening. Jesus says, you know, you know when the weather's coming and the weather's not coming and you can't play golf, but you don't know how to understand the sign of the times. This guy understands the time, sign of the times. So I was grooving the book on the left, The Disappearing Church, which actually has disappeared in my house, so it's quite ironic. I don't know where it is, Disappearing Church, and then I listened to his podcast called This Cultural Moment. And I've listened to it really so much. So I'm going to quote a lot of this, and I just want you to, uh, I said to Drew, just so you don't think I'm a plagiarist. I'm honestly saying this is my source, okay? So there's like a footnote, this is my source. But I've just kind of processed it for you. And he takes you through uh, the shape of, of the gospel of self, And what is interesting is it follows the Christian gospel. It follows the pattern of the Christian gospel. So the Christian gospel starts with creation. What comes next? Not yet. Starts with creation. What comes next? The fall. It starts with a perfect world. Something's gone wrong. What happens next? Exile you could do, but actually what happens next is sin. Perfect world. Fall because of sin. Sin's ruining the world. And then what happens is 
Jesus comes, and what's the word we use for that? Redemption or salvation. You follow that? So, so that's a narrative. We understand that, that the world was perfect, something's gone wrong, some substance or some behavior or some sin is ruining the world, and we need to be saved from it so we can get to heaven. Yeah? We all understand that. And it's interesting. And what I, it blew me away that it was almost like it just, Mark says, he's just talking about this. And I thought, wow, this is so helpful understanding our cultural moment. And I'm sorry if you feel like, where's the application? Application is coming. You have to come back. You've got to come back, okay? You just need to understand. I think you need to understand the ideas of the culture we're in. And then I'll say much, much more about, like, how do you cope with it? Because I can't do it all in one go. So will you forgive me if this feels thin on application? I, I, I had somebody, I showed him my notes, and he said, you just need to root it for people. And I think, I'm trying, I'm really trying. But, okay, but you might find this application helpful. You might find this stuff helped you. So the first thing is, in the, in the gospel of self, that, that it's all about me, the first thing that we believe is that we all believe that we were all created innocent. You hear this, don't you? You hear this idea, you know, that, that, that loads of innocent people were killed. Yeah? It's not a wrong thing to say, is it? But actually, is it a wrong thing to say? Theologically, it's wrong, isn't it? Because <laughs> nobody's innocent. But in our culture, we talk, we've got this idea that we're all born innocent and, and whole. That our inner self is, 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 is undamaged. And there was a point where we're truly ourselves. Yeah? So we hear that and we think, yeah, look, I can track with that. I can track with that. And so we've got this idea of our inner self that's undamaged and that, and that we want to be truly ourselves and that our true self lies hidden deep within our subconscious. That's the, you hear that all the time. You, you, that is the narrative. You read it all the time. You, and you might, if you're thinking, hang on a minute, I'm not sure if I believe this or not, it's because it's really close to the truth. It's kind of half a story. Now, the, the Christian gospel doesn't believe that, does it? The first humans were born innocent but the, and, and in relationship with God. But the, but the gospel of self says you need to find true meaning inside yourself. Whereas the gospel says, no, you need to find true meaning in relationship with Jesus. So that's the kind of creation, that's the starting point of this story. What happens next is fall. And, and Mark, Mark Sayers says what happens is we've all suffered this inner trauma. He uses this thing was, there's a time when I was... There was a time without trauma where your parents didn't embarrass you in front of everybody. And you, you used to be this perfect person. And, and, and you know, the, what happened is this trauma happened to me. The, the world around me has damaged me. My family, my parents, my father. You know, this, this thing happened to me in my childhood. This thing happened at school. There's this divorce and this bereavement. And we all feel that we've been defined. That thing that happened to us has, has been spoiled, has, has, has kind of ruined the world. And, and that's what's wrong with the world. That these things have happened. But what happens is it's, it's gone further. Mark Sayers says that we, we now feel we're weighed down by, these are the words he uses, binding commitments, unrealistic expectations, adult responsibilities, externally given identities, restrictive traditions. So what we say is like, this stuff happened to me and it came because my because of, of unrealistic expectations that were put on me, or because adult responsibilities were given to me, or, or my parents were trying to shape me in this way, or, or I had to go to church and it made me think like this. And so what happens is, in, in the gospel of self, any, any form of commitment 
and responsibility and definitely any form of outside authority is seen as an obstruction to your true self. Now you might think, hang on a minute, but if you, if you think and you listen to kind of chat shows or you listen to kind of songs, pop songs, this is the narrative, that you've been broken by the world, that the world has spoiled you. And then what happens is the world is trying to put these things on you. It's trying to tell you you're like this. You've got to be like that person or you've got to behave this way or you've got to do this. And so we've had this kind of sense of trauma. Let me try and explain it. Um, please hear me. I'm not trying to say that, that, that pregnancy is a trauma. I'm just trying to say in, our, in, in the gospel of self, it is a trauma. So here's how it goes. Um, if, you, if you're married and you want to have kids, Great. And it's really hard and difficult if you want to have kids and you can't. So let me just state that. You know, if you want to have kids and you think, I'm married, I want to have kids, I want to have a family and you can't, that's really difficult. But actually, in our culture, having kids is not always seen in our culture as like a positive thing. Is it? You hear like, whoa, you're going to have kids, man, that's it. Your life's gone. You know, you ain't going to sleep. You know, they're, they're going to take all your time. And, you know, it costs like £150,000 to raise every single child you have. And, and, you, and we get this kind of, whoa, hang on a minute. And so suddenly the baby comes and you're faced with binding commitments to the baby. You're faced with adult responsibility to provide and feed for this baby. You, you're faced with a duty of care to someone beyond yourself. So instead of being free to be yourself, you feel like I've got to be a mom or a dad. And what, how do we respond in society to that inconvenience? How do we respond to that inconvenience? What if they're not married? Come on, say it. What happens? We say, get rid. This, is, this baby doesn't fit with my plan. You know, this is going to invade on my social space. It's going to invade on my autonomy. I, I, I'm going to have to look after this baby. I, I, it's not right. So, the, you know, that's it. I mean, honestly... That's what we've got. We we remove babies because it's inconvenient, because it's going to be this trauma, this fall, that's going to mess up your life. And even in marriage, people are like, whoa, I don't want to have a baby yet. We don't want to have a baby yet. We'll have one. I mean, it wasn't like that with us. Naomi saying, can we have a baby? Like, from the first moment, I thought, well, just be with me for a bit. (laughs) Can I have a baby? You know, and and there's kind of, I want to have a baby, I want to have a baby. But, But most people, it's like, I don't want to have a baby. You know, because if I have a baby, whoa, this is, you know, I, I've, I've really enjoyed being able to go away for the weekend and do this and, work, you know, when you... Is that not true in our culture? Is that track? You seem like, I'm not with you, but hey, come on. It is true. And so we fear this narrative. We delay kids because we'll experience this fall that we don't even get married. We don't even get married because we fear the loss of choice and the loss of self. <laughs> Why don't people get married these days? Because the thing, if I get married... I am saying no to choice and yes to commitment. And that's like a big trauma in our society. In the gospel of self, the fall is loss of freedom of choice due to binding commitments and expectations and externally given responsibilities. Any obstruction to finding your truth for self. Obviously in the Christian gospel, the fall comes when humanity rejects God. As I said earlier, the idea of this restrictive God that limits our freedoms and drives us to pushing God out and putting self on the throne inevitably results in a ruined soul and a ruined world. 
We believe the lie that if we're on the throne and we have all our choices, the world is we're going to be happy. And what's spoiled it is somebody's narrowed our freedom. So what's sin in this gospel story? And, 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 I, and I really want you to, to, to try and understand what's going on here. What's sin? Sin is going to what ruins the world. What ruins the world? What ruins the world for you? What ruins the world for you? Talk to your neighbor and say, this is the thing that makes my life hard. Turn to your neighbor. This is the thing that makes my life hard. This is what ruins the world for me. Okay, what ruins the world in the gospel of self, listen carefully, is anything that makes you unhappy. So I don't know if you mention anything that makes you unhappy. What ruins the world in the gospel of self is anything that makes you unhappy. What ruins the world in the gospel of Jesus is rejecting God and walking away from relationship with him. That ruins the world. As that quote said, that ruins the world. That ruins our soul. But in, in, in the gospel of self, anything that makes you unhappy. Sin is anything that restricts our freedom to pursue happiness. Or anything that makes me unhappy or lowers our self-esteem. But the kicker is, in the gospel of self, we've confused happiness with what? Pleasure. We've confused happiness with pleasure. So if you ask people today, are they happy? Even though Western culture is richer and safer, most people say they're less happy than they were. So here's a survey, I think it's a little graph. Here's a survey from the BBC, so it must be true. 957, so just before I was born, three years before I was born, they asked people, are you happy? Different questions, but same idea. Very happy. Over 50% said they were very happy. Fairly happy. 42, 43%. Not very happy, not many. Now, in 1957, people were poor. The war just happened. There's, you know, rationing had just come through. It was a fairly restrictive environment that called according to what we would say, that you know, people were told what to do and by their parents and by the state, and they did it. Now what's happened? We've got masses of freedom, masses of economic wealth, and what's happened? We're less happy. People have gone from being very happy to fairly happy. The reality is we've been told that, that, that if we get pleasure, then we'll be happy. It's like, those student, it's like those student satisfaction surveys. Do you know which universities have the lowest satisfaction rating? Oxford and Cambridge, Bristol, Durham, the kind of top universities where people think, I thought it was going to be different. I thought I achieved these grades and I was going to be happy, but I'm not. Student surveys, we just feel like I'm discontented because it's not quite what I expected. The irony is our culture is designed to make you discontented. What makes you discontented? What makes you feel unhappy? Every time you watch the TV, apart from when the, your rugby team loses, that makes you unhappy. My team lost, in, lost a goal in the last minute again of the game. I made me unhappy. You know, how shallow am I? But, but advertising makes you unhappy. Advertising is designed to make you unhappy. Yeah. Why? Because it's designed to make you feel, if you had that, you'd be happy. So I've, I said to you, I've just got a new car. It's new to me. It's, you know, it's 
2015, you might think, that's not very new. It's new to me. It's like the nicest car I've ever got. And you get it, and the moment you're driving it, you think, oh, it doesn't do that. I thought it would do that. I thought it would connect to the internet and make my tea and, you know, parent my children. You know, but, but it doesn't do that. You know, so I'm disappointed. You know, your iPhone is constantly out of date, isn't it? Why is that? Because they want you to buy another one. So here's the iPhone, iPhone 11 with three, three cameras. Have you seen that advert? And they throw that, you don't watch enough TV, do you? And they throw that fruit at it, and they're throwing bananas and, and, and lettuce and all sorts of stuff and say, woo, this phone is really tough. I said, well, why don't they smack it with a hammer and then we'll see if it's really tough <laughs> rather than you have to cover it in this massive thing. You know, here's a lovely sleek phone, you've got to cover it in this massive thing. But we've got this kind of choice anxiety and we've got this kind of sense of, oh, I, I went on holiday. So I took my kids on holiday. I thought we went to Croatia, sounds lovely. In the car going home was, I didn't really enjoy it, Dad. It's like, what? <laughs> because it wasn't this. We're designed to feel unhappy. We're designed to feel discontent. I think uh, John Mark Comer from, uh, the, from Portland, Oregon says, digital capitalism is, is designed to make you discontented. Then you buy stuff. And that's, that's sin. Oh, man, I haven't got my stuff. I'm unhappy. John Mark Comer says further, he says in this podcast, he said, we're discipled by culture to equate finding happiness as pleasure. But pleasure is something you always need more of. The second your glass is empty, you need a refill. The second the experience is over, you need another. The second a romantic partner falls off, you need another romantic high or sex sexual escapade. That technology that's no longer cutting edge, you need a new gadget, whatever. And so this never-ending hamster wheel. And that's what culture has told us. You just need to get happy. Again, Mark says in his book, uh, Disappearing Church, says this, when our culture replaced the realm of the spiritual with the realm of the subconscious self, in other words, it started to believe this gospel of self, our prime concern switched from the state of our souls to the state of our feelings. The quest for salvation was replaced by the goal of fulfilling our desires. So in the gospel of self, sin becomes anything that makes me unhappy, which is redefined as low self-esteem or anything I don't feel pleasure in the moment, but increasing unhappiness, we now think is actually anything I found difficult. So I know if you're a teacher, are there any teachers here? One or two. Did you find, do you find the start of term difficult? But you know, you find the start, it's like, oh, my life's terrible because I don't want to go to work. You know, I used to think that every September I had six weeks off and then it's like, oh, I have to go to work. Oh, that's really difficult. I don't want to do that. I don't want anything difficult. Or that a conversation that, that's difficult. Oh, man, if I have that difficult conversation, I'm just going to be a wreck. So what's happening on universities is that people have become so fragile that you can't have that conversation. You can't disagree with anyone. Is that true? So like if, you, if I was in a, a, a child protection training uh, in, in, in one of my roles as a trustee and I'm listening and thinking, this is, some of this stuff is so true and painful, but some of it is like junk, jumbo. And I'm wanting to put my hand up and say, excuse me. And I thought, I just can't. I just can't because, like, man, you, you, what, you think that? Man, woof. 
You know, and suddenly we've got this victim culture where we're all incredibly fragile. That's why, because it's, we're trying to create salvation for ourselves. We're trying to create, like, the good world for ourselves. Mark Sayers puts it this way, that the gospel of self are on this evangelist of the gospel of self on a great mission to prohibit, I love this, prohibit anyone from prohibiting. <laughs> Seeking to propagate its own creed, which is there is no creeds except the creed of self. Preaching its own dogma that there should be no dogma. If you, probably, if you don't understand that, I think, fair enough. I'll just throw it in there. But basically, we're being told what to think. We're being told there's this narrative that you've got to have this happy, free life. And if you stop somebody, disagree, if you disagree with that. So the thing I thought was this lady was talking about neuroplasty. In other words, the kids' brains are shaped as they grow up. And she said, you know, that some of the abuse that happens in families, it's a child protection train, some of the abuse that happens in families really affects these kids' brains when they're really, really fragile. Okay, I must move on. Okay, so we've got this kind of sense where we can't do anything. So we've built this statue. Finally, let's just kind of get this down. We've built this statue like Nebuchadnezzar. You must work this image of self that I've set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship this will be thrown into a blazing furnace. So salvation then becomes, in this story, salvation becomes, I I just want to be free. I want to be free from binding commitments and unrealistic expectations and responsibilities and and restrictive traditions. I just want to rediscover myself. So there's an advert on the TV where a guy's going on on a cruise and he says, this is the life. They pour him a vodka martini or whatever and he just says, this is the life. So this is how it rolls for us. Salvation is that life's tough. I just need a weekend away. In your marriage, how many times have people said, I'm leaving you, I just need some time. I'm quitting my job to go traveling. I need some me time. I'm happy now because I'm at peace with myself. This kind of life on the beach of no responsibilities, no challenges, no binding commitments, nobody telling you what to do. That, that's what you want, isn't it? That's what our culture's told us what we want. Am I there? So how do we deal with this? How do we deal with this? The way we deal with this is we build an image of ourselves. We build an image of ourselves. And we do that where? Out there, yes. We do that out there by, by having the right car in the drive and having the right size TV and the, and the right material stuff. And why do we do that? We do that partly because we want that stuff, but we do that so partly people say, wow, look at your lifestyle. We do that because we want comparison, because our self is so fragile, we want people to say, your life's amazing. We want people to affirm us, and we want to compare ourselves with others so that we can feel better. And where do we do that most of all? Online, because you can pretend online. So what we do is we, you know, if, we're, if, our, if our world is, is, is kind of, we, we just are sporadic in our engagement and relationally passive and commitment phobia and consumerist, online we're just the opposite. Our engagement with media is completely not sporadic. It's absolutely full on. Our engagement is not passive. And our marketing strategy, our consumer framework is we market ourselves. We market ourselves. We've taught our our millennials to put their lives out there to be crushed by comparison or puffed up with affirmation. And we feel that this is 
what we want. We think, now I've, you know, I've got this life that everybody wants. I've got this life that people feel, wow, I wish I had your life. We compare and think, I've had that life. And we put it out on social media like, like me, love me, I'm famous, I'm beautiful, I'm cool, I'm intelligent. And it's not the gospel. It's not the Christian gospel. <clears throat> we come to church looking for the same thing. You're already thinking, he's had far too much of my time. My time. I've lent, I will lend him 25 minutes, but he's going for 40 now. And this is outrageous. And we come to church looking for an experience to enhance our lives, that God will provide us with emotional highs and happiness, that the, he'll deal with our trauma, he'll massage our self-esteem, he'll heal, heal our body and fill our bank accounts. And there's churches that tell you that. They say, you, you got this church, we're going to fill your bank account, you're going to have this amazing life, the best life yet. But Jesus says this, doesn't he? And we're finishing the same place. For Jesus says, whoever wants to save their life, Jesus says, whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and lose themselves? It's a lie. The gospel itself is an empty lie. And we've, even with our best intentions, thought, I thought God was supposed to massage my, my ego. I was supposed to come to these meetings and feel the Holy Spirit and feel, whoa. Although I was supposed to have this kind of church community that's going to just kind of love me and care for me and whatever. And then what happens is Jesus says, I'm going to give you a new identity. And you go, hang on a minute, I want to correct my own identity. Jesus says, come and die to yourself. And you go, hang on a minute, I thought I could just be myself. He says, kind of be, live in community. He says, I don't want to be in community with these people. They're weird and they, you know, they take up my time and they're not quite what I wanted to be. And you know, I don't, why do I want to be with that? And you want me to serve and you want me to give? What's the matter? No, whoa. I want to sleep with my girlfriend and you say no? Ah, poof. It's, it's in me, guys. That's why I'm preaching it to you. Jesus says, enter, finish here. Band, you come back. Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. It leads to the ruined soul and many enter it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life and only few find it. When I used to hear that, I used to think that means there's not going to be many people who are going to be Christians. But I don't think it's saying that. I think it's, and again, the, the reading and listening to these guys, it's actually, there's a narrow way of Jesus. There's a narrow way of Jesus that we're called to go on. The broad way is do what you want, live how you want. Chase the dream, hope to be happy, and you'll end up fragile and discontented. And that's the broad way, and that's where everybody's going, but we're called to turn off to a narrow way, turn off to a narrow path, a specific path, the life of Jesus. Let me leave, leave, leave John Mark Comer with the last words. There's a very specific way. I'm going to talk about this in the next couple of weeks. There's a very specific way to live as an apprentice of Jesus. It's just not the broad way, which is just do whatever you want. Be true to yourself. Follow your desires. Do that thing. It's a specific, narrow way to, that leads to life and ends in the kingdom of God. 
It's a narrow way of forgiveness, a way of peace that's not anxious but rests in God's presence, a way that's not lustful, not angry, a way of forgiveness, a way of service, of sacrifice and generosity, a way of life that's fully present, a life together in community. And when we break bread, we're basically saying that we've been called to this way of Jesus. We've been called to this way of the the broken life, the the way of forgiveness, the way of grace, the way of the poured out life. And and that's when we we celebrate this. It's like Jesus says, do this as often as you eat it and drink it in. Remembrance. We need to remember the story. We need to remember that, that we are here not for ourselves and not for pleasure and not for finding ourselves, but we're here for other things, for meaning and purpose and community and lives that matter and lives that sacrifice. And when I, re- when I talk about that for myself, I think, oh, it's too hard. But that's the journey we want to go on, amen? For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk.